Hope Church. So we're continuing our study through the book of Matthew. Um, So let's go back to Matthew chapter 8. We'll begin in verse 28 uh, this morning. And, you know, um, last time we were we were uh, together or a couple times ago we were together we were looking through um, Jesus telling people you know to count the cost he says foxes have earlier in the chapter he says foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head um, he says hard things like follow me and let the dead bury their own dead just a quick reminder there when the man says Lord let me first go and bury my father there isn't in the way the language is written, there isn't any indication that his father had died. It was just going to be an ongoing waiting process, you know, that could take years. And then, you know, the man would follow then. And, but Jesus says, no, you know, he wants, when he calls, he wants Paul, people to follow him immediately. And I think not to make himself, this, you know, central to the story, um, the author Matthew, uh, later on in chapter 9, it just gives this little bit where he says, and Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office and he said, follow me. So he arose and followed him. And I, don't, I think he, he put that in later because he didn't want to make like a, a direct statement of, hey, I, you know, like a comparison of these guys, you know, weren't as serious to follow Jesus as, you know, I was and to kind of put himself up on a pedestal. But it is an important, you know, part of the story. That when Jesus called Matthew, he left his, everything that he was doing and everything that was valuable to him, and he just went and followed. And that's something that we need to remember and to, to recognize. And then, you know, on the Sea of Galilee, they go across from, you know, west to east, and that's where we pick up this morning in verse 28. There was that storm on the sea, and, you know, the people are afraid. And Jesus rebukes them of, you know, why are you fearful, you of little faith? And then he tells the the winds and the sea to calm down, and they do. And the disciples marvel at him. So it says in verse 28, And when he had come to the other side of the country of the Gerardines, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? And now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went to the pigs. And behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. And the herdsmen fled. And going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. So let's talk about that for a minute, because this is a pretty amazing um, and powerful scene. As they you know, finish their, their journey on the boat uh, to the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee, and there's these two demon-possessed men that come out of the tombs. And it, you know, there was a reputation there. You know, they knew, they kind of, you know, knew about these, these two that, you know, they're so fierce, no one could pass through there. You know, people are avoiding that, um, that way. But these demons know who Jesus is. 
There's no question here. They recognize him. So there's two things. One, they know who Jesus is. They recognize him, that he is the son of God. And two, they know who ultimately wins. They know who ultimately wins. They know that they have chosen, ultimately chosen poorly when they decided to leave heaven's glory with Lucifer. That they are on the losing side of the equation. And so they go into the pigs and, you know, we see there the, the pigs go into the sea and the sea of, of Galilee. There are these steep places, you know, on the banks. And so you can imagine that scene of this herd rushing in and drowning into the waters. Um, then the herdsmen went into the city. Now, it's, we, we do have to recognize here that this area is um, a, obviously a mixture of, of Jew and Gentile. Because, you know, the Jewish people aren't, um, you know, supposed to eat pork. You aren't supposed to eat the pig. And so, you know, these aren't being raised to sell to Jewish people. They're being sold to, you know, sold to the, you know, many of the Gentiles in the area. They're, you know, the Roman Empire is here. And so there's many, um, you know, going to be soldiers and, you know, outposts and, and different people. It's going to be a, a very diverse uh, group of people that are in this area. And so they go and tell what happened, and all it says all the city, you know, it's a lot of people come out. And this is one of the saddest sentences in the Bible. In all the scripture, this is one of the saddest sentences. When they came out to meet Jesus, it says, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. Now think of all the people, you know, in, in different scenes that we see throughout the Gospels of people seeing Jesus or meeting Jesus and falling at his feet to worship him. You have you store the, you know, the woman, you know, selling, you know, um, what she has. She, you have the, the stories of, of Jesus having his feet washed with, you know, tears. You know, you have people saying, forgive me. <laughs> you know, um, and then you have this entire group of people from the, you know, this whole city. They see Jesus. They said, okay. And they see the, the men who were demon-possessed. You know, he said these men were, were you, know, they, they're, you know, they're demon-possessed. And even if they just viewed them as insane, you know, we believe that that's a real, you know, demon-possession is a real thing. But even those who were, you know, just secular and, and didn't believe in religious things. I don't know there's too many people here in the, of, like that in this time because they all had their gods. The, you know, the Romans had tons of gods and you know, believing in, in all these things. Um, but you would see that these men who you know, cut themselves and who were violent, then they're in their right minds in control of themselves, healed, cured, um, not afflicted, and they saw the power of God at work. And they asked the one with that power to leave them alone. Why? Because they counted the cost. Because they counted the cost of their herds, of their livelihood, 
their bank accounts and they said Jesus isn't worth it. They made a financial calculation and said Jesus is too disruptive to our business. You know, our agricultural business is not going to, you know, we're going to have to change a lot of things if Jesus is now, we follow, if we follow him. They didn't want that. They didn't want that. They counted the cost and they said, please leave us alone. Now, that's the emphasis here in Matthew. This, the same account is also recorded in Mark and Luke. And Mark and Luke both give an emphasis to one of the demon-possessed men. In Mark chapter 5, verse 18, it says, As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And he, that's Jesus, did not permit him, but said, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This is really important for our purposes um, this morning. Because you can imagine this man who had been demon-possessed, who knows his life has been forever changed by Jesus, and all he wants is you know, more time in the physical presence of Jesus. At this point, he probably doesn't even understand that he can you know, still talk to Jesus <laughs> you know, that he, you know, through prayer, that he can ask things in the name of Jesus, that he can still have communion and fellowship with Jesus without being in the same physical space. But what he does know is that Jesus has healed him, that Jesus is the Son of God, that he wants to be with Jesus. This is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And he doesn't want to see Jesus get in that boat and go back across the Sea of Galilee without him in it. He says he begs. He begs. I mean, you can see that scene. I think you can use your imagination a little bit. You can see that scene of that man just begging Jesus, let me go with you. But Jesus had a different plan. Jesus did not, it says Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell him how much the Lord has done for you and how much he has had mercy on you. Now, at this point, this, this man has two choices. He can sulk because he didn't get what he wanted. Or he can be obedient. Those are really his two options. He can sulk and say, I didn't get what I wanted. I didn't go to be in that boat and go back across and be one of Jesus's, you know, immediate circle of disciples. I didn't get what I wanted. I feel rejected. And therefore, I'm going to sulk. And I'm just going to go live my life. Because the plan didn't work out how I intended it 
that what I desired. Or he can be obedient and do what Jesus asked him to do. And so the character and the heart of this man is revealed in this moment of crisis when his desire is met with a different task from Jesus. Go home to your friends, tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And what a blessing to see that he was obedient and then, I mean, he, he actually, you know, go to your friends. He does more than that because he can't contain his joy of the changed life that he has in relationship with Jesus now. So he, he doesn't just tell his friends, but it says that he began to proclaim in, in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And the Decapolis is you know basically that words means basically like ten cities. It's an area of ten cities. So that's you know a lot of, of walking or riding a donkey or whatever, you know, getting around to these different places to proclaim what Jesus had done for him. He actually goes, it seems like he goes above and beyond. That he naturally understands that call to love God. And to love neighbor as self. You know, I mean, you're, you, know you can kind of see um, that while this, this was a life-changing event, there's going to be a growing process for this individual. You know, as he understands, even from the Old Testament, those basic commands, uh, you know, to love God with all that you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he's seeing that entire region as these are my neighbors, Jew and Gentile and whoever, these are my neighbors. These are my neighbors. And I want to tell them about the goodness of God, how God has you know, totally changed his life. Now, what a, a contrast between the city that said, please leave. Jesus, please leave our presence. And the man who says, Lord, all I want is to be in your presence, but then who's given a different task and then fulfills it, you know, to, at such a high level. It's, it's really incredible. I hope we don't miss it. I hope we don't overlook it or just read through it and go, that's neat. But that we, we take it in to ourselves and we, we examine it and we examine our own hearts and we ask some tough questions of the cost of following Jesus and what price am I willing to pay? That's a question that, you know, that, that's there. There's another question that happens because you know, I think it's a pretty normal experience that, that, that what this demon-possessed man who had been healed experience is not so radically different from what most followers of Jesus experience at one time or another. And that is saying, Jesus, this is the desire of my heart, whatever this is. Jesus, this is the desire of my heart. This is what I, I want. And don't you think it's good? I mean, because what the man asked for, 
isn't bad. I mean, in a, in a tons of circumstances, because uh, I don't want us to, to mess this up. Well, I'm not going to ask to be in Jesus' presence. No, ask to be in Jesus' presence and just understand that his presence is with you wherever you go. As he promised, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. That we don't have to worry about the presence of God if we are willing to enter into it. It is wherever you are. Wherever you are now, wherever God calls you to be in the future, the presence of God is there and available to you. So we don't have that situation because Jesus isn't physically right now here you know, on the earth. We, we commune through the Spirit of God. So wherever you are, we have it. But we do have a conflict of when we say, Jesus, this is the desire of my heart. Isn't it good? And a lot of times it is good. It is indeed good. It's not a bad thing. You're not, you know, it's not like, Lord, this is the desire of my heart and it's just sin. That's not what I'm talking about here. There is that. But, you know, obviously we know what we need to do with that. We need to confess and put the sin away and follow Jesus. But I'm talking about when there's stuff that you want in your life that's good and you say, this is good. And Jesus says, you know, yes, that's good, but that's not what I have for you. I want you to do this. How you handle that is the same test that this man faced where you say, you sulk and you say, well, I'm upset and I'm going to stay upset because I didn't get what I wanted from God. Or obey and find the joy in the obedience. Because, yes, I'm sure, you know, it twinged a little bit inside for that man to hear Jesus say, no, I don't permit you to come with me. I'm sure that twinged a little bit in his heart. It hurt. It had to have stung just a little bit. But then he goes and imagine his joy in proclaiming in all of these cities of all that God had done for him and people responding to that message, whether that's not necessarily always going to be a positive response, but people are responding one way or the other to what he is sharing with them about Jesus being the king, the all-powerful one, the, the Messiah, you know, the promised Savior, that Jesus is all of these things and that he knows it's true because what's happened to him personally. And no matter what theory or thing that somebody throws you know, back into his, into his face, he knows who he has encountered. And that brings another question. You know, when your faith is tested, you know, and, and many of you are you know, in university circles and, and you know, there's, there's many ideas you know, in this world that, that come. You know, and and you know, we, we believe we can answer all the hard questions, but you know, there are hard questions. And there are some times when you hear you know, anything long enough, it can kind of make you, if you're only based on information, it can kind of shake you. You know, I mean, that's why, I mean, if a person reads on the internet enough that the earth is flat, they might start to believe it. As irrational as it is, 
you know, if they just reading that information, if that's the source and that keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming, you go, well, maybe, hmm, that's an interesting point. Huh. Well, maybe, eh, you know, I mean, if you throw some drugs in there with it, well, then you really get going. But, you know, I'm just, I'm just saying, you know, people can be dissuaded from reality, but, you know, that information. And so if you are constantly hearing there's no God, if you're constantly hearing, you know, we want a cosmic lottery and, you know, it's random and it's chance, but we, you know, enough times and, you, you know, it's, it hits, you know, sort of thing. And, and enough intelligent people, you know, hit you enough times, your basics and in information, especially if you're not doing a lot of good homework, can, could shake you. But you know what can't shake you? You know the people that are really hard to shake? People who have experienced the presence of God in their lives. People who've had their burdens lifted at the foot of the cross. People have taken Jesus up on his offer of, come unto me, you who are burdened and heavy laden, and they've received their rest, their forgiveness, their peace. Their salvation. And there's points, there's touchstones that they can look back at and they can know what God has done for them and it was real and can't be explained away by some theory. Think back to the nation of Israel when they crossed over the Jordan River out of Egypt. And they put 12 stones, one for each tribe, in the middle of the river. And then they put 12 more on the bank so that generation after generation they could come back and tell that story. Here is what God did for us. Here is what God did for us. When he parted the waters and we walked across on dry land, here is what God did for us. And so I hope you have those things in your mind and that you remind yourself often Here's who I was, or you know, here's what God did for me. Here's the burden God lifted f- from me. Here's the moment, you know, God changed my life. That you have those touchstones that you can go back to and say, yes, this is what God did. Praise be to God. And that your faith is firmed up through the truth of the scripture and also from your own real, genuine experience. With Jesus. Because no matter what he encounters in those ten cities, that man knows who he was and what had happened to him and how Jesus changed his life. Do you know that this morning? That Jesus has changed your life and that he is with you. And then, open-handed, are you okay to say, Jesus Here's what here's my heart. You know, some of you have already done this in your lives. You've already gone through this experience. But here's my heart. Here's what I want. And Jesus says, yes, that's good, but it's not what I have for you. And then how do you respond to that? Determines your future. It really does. To sulk and be a bitter 
or to embrace, to thrive, to enjoy what God has given you to do. Those are our options. If not now, at some point in life, you either, listen, you're, you're going to come to that moment. You're either going to have experienced it in the past, in the present, or in the future. There's going to be something. And there almost has to be. Because there has to be a test. You understand that? I mean, for, uh, for our obedience to be real, for our faith to be real, you know, we have to be tested. You know, we have to see if, you know, th- there has to be the test of, have we really acquired from the Lord and can apply it in our lives? Can we do that? And in Jesus, we can you know, and, and there's nothing wrong with saying, Lord, I can't. Lord, I don't want to and I can't, but you can. So please just change, change my heart, change my attitude, change my perspective, and help me to move forward in you. So as we encounter this new year, I hope that we hear one of the things Jesus say to us is, you know, go tell your friends what I've done for you. And I, and I hope that like this man who's had his life radically changed by Jesus, we take that to heart, we go and do it, and we do more than that. Because Jesus gives us another command, you know, go into all the world, make disciples of all the people groups baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son of the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. But it begins relationally, you know, driven. If you, you know, if you just, listen, I don't expect, like this guy, you know, he, he was probably in marketplaces and on the street corners, and say, hey, anybody who wants to listen to what Jesus did for me, you know, please listen. Here's what he did for me. I don't necessarily expect us all going out and doing that, but what Jesus says here, you know, just go in and tell the people, tell the people in your life. Who in your life do you need to tell about Jesus? What relatives? What friends? What people you go to class with? What people you go to work with? What people in your neighborhood? What, what people that your kids, you know, do an activity or a sport with? You know, what families there? What are the people in the community that do you need to... To go and to talk to Jesus about. And I, I, I pray that we, we learn to be bold in that and to find our joy in that. To find real joy, to not find just the early stages of fear and trepidation and what's going to happen and all those things. But the obedience, the joy is in the obedience. The joy comes after, in the process and after the obedience. Beforehand, there can be the, Lord, I don't necessarily want to. Lord, I'm afraid. And you need to hear from the Lord like, that he's with you. And if Jesus is with you, then you can do everything he's asked you to do. 
in his power, in his strength. There's nothing that Jesus asks you to do that you can't do. He's not unrealistic. He doesn't throw you a task that says, I'm going to give you something that you can't do with my help. He's going to give us stuff you can't do, but he's not going to give you anything that you can't do with his help because he's there with you to be the power at work through you and through us. So this week, who are you going to talk to? Please don't leave here this morning without having, you know, in your mind, this person I'm going to try to talk to. Lord, please open a door, open an opportunity, open a way to have a conversation with this person that I love, that's on my heart, that needs you, Lord. And that gives a great value to, to all the rest of what, everything you're doing. It makes it worth it. Because there's an eternal peace to it. We all do a lot of work. We all do a lot of things. A lot of volunteer stuff. A lot of trying to help people. There's got to be an eternal peace. And that only comes through Jesus. And having him as the center and the focus and the power of it. So let's have our eyes on Jesus. Ask him to fill us up this morning. Heavenly Father, we come to you. We thank you for your word and your love and your, your goodness to us. Lord, help us to be like this man who knows his life's been changed and he's just got to tell somebody. Lord, you know we are going to tell people about everything we're really excited about. Any good deal we find, or our team wins, our kid does something great, our spouse surprises us, we're going to tell people, Lord. But this morning, help us to be reminded that you are the best and greatest in our lives and that everything else pales in comparison to your glory, to who you are. And help us not to be able to contain it. Not that we're forcing ourselves to say your name, but that we can't stop but saying your name, Jesus. And so will you please fill us and give us that passion for you. Lord, sometimes our passion wanes and we confess and we repent and say, Lord, we love other stuff too much and we're too distracted. But renew us and fill us up this morning as we take that bread and that cup and we remember the cost of your body and blood that was sacrificed on that tree for us. That when we leave here, we got to tell somebody. That it wouldn't be containable, Lord. And that would be your doing and not ours because you know that we are weak and we are timid and we are fearful and we overthink and we will think of every reason and excuse of why it's a bad idea in our own flesh. Lord, we can't do it. And if we just do it in our own flesh, it's going to flop. And so we need you to fill us and to give us your power to give us your boldness, to give us your wisdom, your discernment, your words, so that it wouldn't be us, we'd just be the vessels and you would speak through us, God. As you did through that man that we read about this morning, that you would speak through us and be uncontainable. In your name, Jesus, we ask it. Amen.